Well, there's a few words that I think some of us are tired of hearing, coronavirus, pandemic, unprecedented, CDC, contract tracing, masks, vaccines. There's a few of you who have just told me straight up, I'm tired of talking about COVID-19, and listen, I I get it. There is a collective fatigue that we all feel after 18 months. That's why we're going to spend the next several weeks studying through the book of 1 Peter. You say, why 1 Peter at this time? Peter wrote these, this letter to a church whose world had been turned upside down, different in some ways than ours, but still turned upside down the same way that ours has. In the greeting of his book, he writes, I'm writing to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This was a group of believers who had been scattered all over the world through political and and religious persecution. Everything in their lives were uncertain. Their communities had been shattered. Their worlds were totally rocked. Now, we obviously have not necessarily gone through persecution like that, but many of us, we feel as if we are living through a a period of isolation and uncertainty unlike anything we've ever experienced. While we may not literally be exiles, on some level, we can relate. How do we endure, even thrive, in such a time? That's the question of 1 Peter. First, let me give you a quick word about the author, Peter. Most people, when they start to read the Bible, they develop a real affection for Peter because there's just something about him that we feel like we can relate to. He had a big mouth and said some stupid things. He wasn't real churchy either, which sometimes I find refreshing. The Apostle Paul is sometimes way up here, but Peter's almost always down here. Paul was like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I graduated with honors from, from the best college in the land. And Peter's like, yeah, but can you tell the difference between a carp and a bass? Paul, he strikes me as the kind of guy who translated ancient Hebrew manuscripts in his spare time. Peter's the type of guy who watched Tiger King twice. Paul was the type of guy who wore sweater vests and dry cleaned his clothes. Peter was the guy who wore Crocs in public, and if he got a stain on his robe, he just turned it inside out. You kind of get the drift? The point is, Peter was just really down to earth. And you'll see that his book is that way too. It's gritty, earthy, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles. Two key words there, elect and exiles. Elect means we belong to God. He's our true home now. Exiles. That speaks to our current relationship to the world we live in. Peter, of course, was writing to a people who were literally exiled from their country. And Peter is now using this as a metaphor for all Christians everywhere. All Christians are essentially exiles in this world, temporarily isolated from their true country and taking up residence in another. When you're living in a country that you're not from, you can be one of three things to it. You can be an immigrant, An immigrant is someone who seeks to make their new country their permanent home. They're not from there. They want this new country to be their new home. 
And that's what a lot of Christians do with this world. They might know up here that they're citizens of heaven, but they treat this world as if this is where they really want to live. And so they leverage most of their resources to make a comfortable life here. They obsess about their reputation here. They stress about what they do and don't have here. Am I ever going to get married? Is my ship ever going to come in? Why is life so hard here? There's so much of life I may not experience. Option two is a tourist. A tourist is the opposite of an immigrant. They don't want to live in the new country. They're just visiting. They don't want to form any real connections to the place. They just kind of stay huddled in their own little group. They speak their own language. They eat their own kind of food. They stay in Western hotels. They complain if they can't find a Starbucks. If there's political or social problems going on, it doesn't concern you. You have no connection to that place. And this is the attitude that some Christians have toward our world. They stay separated. They never get involved. They got no connection to the community around them or its problems. Kind of like me and Kirk Cameron, we're just waiting to get raptured off this trailer park of a planet. Now, that's wrong, too. The third option is what Peter talks about here, exile. An exile is someone whose home is somewhere else, but for an undefined amount of time, they have to make their home in a new place. So they invest in this community. They build relationships. They learn the culture. But they don't want to get too attached. And all the while, they're looking for the day when they can go home. Christians who live as exiles aren't focused on owning a lot because their real home is somewhere else. They're satisfied with just enough to get by because their real treasure is somewhere else. It's like when you go to an airport and you see all these little shops in the concourse that they, they, they sell you all these necessities at ridiculously high prices. That's so that when you have a layover, you can be comfortable. But you know what you never see in these shops? Shopping carts. Because nobody goes there to load up. You buy just enough to get by. It's a temporary stop en route to your real home, your true home. Peter wants you to change your mentality toward the world around you. This world is not your true home. So don't be obsessed with your experiences here, what you do or don't have. And don't let it bother you that someone else is different. That's what you should expect if you are in exile. You belong to a different kingdom with a different set of values. You follow a different authority. Christians are supposed to seem strange to the world around them. How could they not? You're living with a whole different set of values. You answer to a different authority. In every way, you are marching to a beat of a different drummer. Imagine that you are watching a huge drum corps perform at halftime of a football game. And everyone in the entire corps has their eyes focused on the guy up on the platform. But you notice there's one guy in the middle who's paying no attention to the conductor. You notice he's got his headphones on and he's not watching the conductor call out the beats of the march, but he's listening to the latest song by Kanye on Spotify. And he's playing along with that beat. He's going to look odd. Not because he's out of sync or has no rhythm, but because he's tuned into something entirely different than everyone else. When you are really tuned into God, you are going to look odd, extremely odd. 
In fact, if you don't look odd, it's because your life is more in rhythm with the world than it is with God's Word. Now, in saying that, there are some Christians who are just odd, period, and say weird things. There's no excuse for that. Don't freak people out around you. It's just that you're supposed to be so out of sync with everyone around you that you seem weird. Peter says, embrace your identity as an exile. In verse 2, he continues, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, here in this opening section, Peter shows us that the whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. If we've got to be outcasts from everyone around us, he wants us to know the glorious majesty of the one we belong to. He starts with God the Father. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Highlight that word mercy. The Father's mercy conceived salvation's plan. Sometimes people think of God the Father as the God of judgment, ready to pour out his wrath. And Jesus is the nicer, understanding son who jumped in the Father's way and said, no, 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 let's extend grace. That's wrong. It was the mercy of the Father that drew up salvation's plan. He executed that plan by the Son, the second member of the Trinity. Now, admittedly, the idea of the Trinity can be quite confusing. You have three separate persons in the Godhead, but just one God, not three different gods. One of the best ways of understanding this comes from the Apostle John when he calls Jesus the Word of the Father. The Word. When you hear my Word, you're hearing me. My words are an extension of me. Timothy I was the first missionary to Muslims in the 8th century, and he was trying to explain and defend the Trinity to a Muslim caliph, and he said, when you think a thought... Your mind comes up with words to express the thought. And then your vocal cords vibrate the air and the vibrations carry to the ear. And all of that is three different things in the process of hearing and knowing what I'm saying or what I'm thinking. He said, God the Father is like the thought. And Jesus is like the word that expresses the thought. And the Spirit is like the wind that carries the vibrations to our ears so that we can understand what the Father is thinking. Jesus was God's Word, the expression of His mercy. Jesus was God purchasing salvation for us through His death on the cross. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we were condemned to die. He was God dying on the cross. And he didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. And what does that salvation offer? A living hope. Living hope means a hope that is stronger than death. A hope that extends beyond death. Where is that hope found? In the resurrection. In the resurrection, everything that could destroy or defeat us 
was crushed. Where is your hope for the future? Is it in the assumption that this pandemic won't last forever? Soon everything will get back to normal? Or that you have enough saved up? Or that your job is secure? I've shared before about Viktor Frankl, who was an a Jewish Austrian doctor imprisoned at Auschwitz during World War II. He survived, and later he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he told stories from his time there. He described how various prisoners would deal with the despair. Many, he said, responded to their hopeless situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves, a kind of survival of the fittest. Others, Frankel said, just gave up. He wrote, Usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us who had been at Auschwitz for a while. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, and their position in society would be restored to them. That was their hope. But after liberation, many of them came home and they found that those things that they had dreamed about, their homes, their jobs, their families, their communities, were gone forever, or they'd at least changed. And an untold many of them went into a deep depression, and many of the survivors even committed suicide. Their hopes had been shattered. Frankel said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world, something they held on to that was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. Frankel said, life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. That's essentially what Peter is saying. Trials and pain expose where our hope is and if it lasts. Like the prisoners at Auschwitz, for many of us, our hope is some fixed reference point here. A hope that our circumstances will change. That one day things will get better. Or maybe apart from this pandemic, you're just not happy right now. You think, one day I'll have a good job. One day I'll be married. One day my marriage will get better. Maybe you feel un undervalued and you think, one day I'll get the recognition I deserve. One day I'll be free from this chronic pain and be healed. But what if those things don't happen? You don't get the job. The marriage doesn't get better. The pain doesn't go away. Do you have a living hope that death cannot touch? A refuge that the challenges of life can't overcome? A shelter that the storms of life can't shake? If you need anything in your life to change in order to be happy or to have peace, you have not found the living hope Peter is talking about. A living hope is a joy and a hope you have in whatever situation you find yourself in. And by the way, I'll say if you're struggling with this and you want somebody to pray with you to find hope, 
we invite you to come forward at the end of our services, and one of us would be happy to pray with you. If you need prayer, you can, you can email prayer at bachelorcreek.com, and, and we will be praying for you. You can fill out the back of, in the, in the seat back in front of you, there's a connection card. You can fill that out and leave it on, on the end of your row, and someone will follow up with you. We want you to find hope. Peter says that in the resurrection, we have a living hope that consists of, verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In these verses, Peter explains what the believer's hope actually is. First, it's to know Christ, just knowing him. Did you see that in verse 8? Peter says the goal of our salvation, the hope that sustains us in trials, is just knowing God, loving him, enjoying him. God is the ultimate end to our salvation. Let me ask you a question. Is God useful to you, or is he beautiful to you? Useful means that, that God is a means to something else that you want. That, that serving him is a way of getting prosperity, or a good marriage, or successful kids, or streets of gold, and a mansion in heaven, or, or whatever. Or is God beautiful, which means that he is an end in himself. Let me illustrate it this way. Growing up, I didn't like running. Now, I loved playing sports, and I loved competition, and so I knew that if I wanted to make the team, if I wanted to get better as a player, then I needed to run. And so I would do the sprints, I would do the conditioning, whatever it would take to, to be better, right? Because at, at the end of the game, when everybody was tired, I wanted to have the stamina, I wanted to have the legs to be able to make the shot. But I hated running. It was just a means to an end. Fast forward 20 years later, guess what I love? You guessed it, running. A couple weeks ago, Tara and I went up to Mackinac Island to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary, and one of my highlights of our time up there was getting up early in the morning as the sun rose and running around the perimeter of the island. It was a cool morning. The waves were crashing up against the rocks. It was incredible. Oh, the irony. When I was in school, running was a means to an end. I did it simply so that I could get better in sports. But now running has become beautiful as an end all of its own. Running used to be useful. Now it is beautiful. Is God useful to you or is he beautiful to you? Do you seek him because he's a good means to something else or do you see him as an end in himself? The trials of life have a way of showing you how God is in himself. 
Second, to be like Christ. This is the second goal God has for us in salvation. These verses talk about God refining us and purifying us to achieve the goal of our faith, verse 9, which is the salvation of our souls. Peter, in these verses, alludes to all three dimensions of our salvation. You can think of them as the three Ps of salvation. In verse 3, he says that we are freed from the penalty of sin. In theological terms, this is called justification. And it happened in the past. You were born again. When you embraced Christ as your Savior, you received at once the forgiveness of your sins. You were given a perfect record, the righteousness of Christ, and you stood blameless in his sight. This was given to you when you received Christ. In verses 4 and 5, Peter says that we are freed from the presence of sin. In theological terms, this is called glorification. It happens in the future. It's something, Peter says in verse 5, that will be revealed later. We will have a perfect, pure heart. We'll love the right things. We'll no longer struggle with pride and hatred and rebellion and weakness and deceit and jealousy. We'll be like Jesus. And oh, I can't wait for that. Let me ask, is this part of your hope? Many Christians talk a lot about what they're saved from. Saved from the penalty of sin, saved from hell. But they don't talk about as much as what they're saved for. Christ-likeness. You see that in some of the ways that, that we phrase salvation. We, we say, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? And that's a good question, but, but equally as important is if you wake up tomorrow morning, will you grow a little bit more to be like Christ? So you have the first P of our salvation, freedom from the penalty of sin. The second P, freed from the, from the presence of sin. The third P is freed from the power of sin. In theological terms, this is called sanctification. And it happens right now in the present, that God is, is making you more into Christ-likeness every day. Peter says that all three are part of your salvation. Justification, glorification, and sanctification. And they're activated all by faith, which means believing that Jesus has done it all for you in the cross and will do it all in you in the resurrection. You rest in him, let him do the work, and become Christ-like. Which leads to the last dimension of our hope, to be with Christ. In verse 4, he points to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Never perish means it can never be destroyed. Never fade means it will last forever and never get boring. Kept in heaven for you means that no one can ever take it away. It's an inheritance preserved from disease and corruption and protected from poverty and injustice. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Samwise Gamgee has this moment where he looks forward to a time where every sad thing comes untrue. This was J.R.R. Tolkien's way of talking about an inheritance, our inheritance. A time in eternity where all sad things come untrue. Where we are, reu where we are reunited with lost family. Disease is taken away. Relationships are finally and fully healed. There is no more pain and crying, and God wipes away every tear. 
That is your true hope, Christian. To know Christ, to be like Christ, to be with Christ. And see, that changes your perspective on trials right now. Trials may be painful. They always are. But trials help purify your heart for the best part of your salvation. Knowing Christ, being like Christ, and being with Christ. Trials loosen your grip on the world, and they force you to press into Him. Peter compares them in verse 7 to the fire that purifies gold. The intense heat makes the impurities melt away, leaving only the pure gold. That's what God does in your heart through trials. The crumbling of your business makes you reorient your priorities. The crumbling of your marriage shatters your self-centeredness and your sense of self-sufficiency. The pain in your body makes you realize how fragile life is, and it teaches you to value those things that truly matter. Trials are God's way of purifying you and preparing you for heaven before you get there. This is the hope we have during trials. In these final verses here, Peter turns to the Spirit's role in salvation. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look look into these things. The Father planned our salvation. Jesus accomplished it. The Spirit brings it to us. The Spirit first did that, he said, by revealing salvation through the prophets and the Bible writers. Moses and David and Isaiah wrote the words, but verse 11, the Spirit was the one speaking within them. The words of the Bible are the words of the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Verse 12, Peter says, the Holy Spirit then brought those words to us. Words on a page alone could not save us. They had to be revealed to our blind and dead hearts. Otherwise, we couldn't really grasp them. Imagine if you had, been born, you had been born blind, and people were trying to describe to you a sunset, but you've never even seen color. But then suddenly, your eyes are opened. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes these concepts that we've heard about, and He makes them real. He makes them burst alive in our hearts that, that make us yearn for them. The process of the Spirit getting the words in the Bible was called inspiration. The process of them making, being understandable to you is called illumination. Peter calls it the new birth. That is the Spirit's role in salvation. Finally, last thing, notice that little phrase that Peter throws in there. It's almost like an addendum. Even angels long to look into these things. These gospel truths are so amazing that angels long to get a look into them. What an amazing statement. Angels are jealous of what we get to experience. Of course, angels understand the truth of the gospel, but they've never experienced it. They've never tasted of its beauties for themselves. 
Think about that. How do you make an angel jealous? Think of everything that they've seen. They were there when the foundation of the world was created. They were there at the parting of the Red Sea. They were there when God spoke through Balaam's donkey. Yet they wish that they could feel what we get to feel in the gospel. Peter wants to strengthen you as an exile by saturating you in living hope. And how does he do that? By pulling you in to get a closer look at the gospel. In the gospel are all the resources for the Christian life. The gospel is like a well. The best water in the well is not by widening the circumference of the well and learning a bunch of theological facts. The best water is found by going deeper and deeper into that well. And going deeper into the living hope and the resurrection of Christ will help you in two ways. It will first give you greater clarity in life. It shows you that earthly life is temporary, but heavenly citizenship is eternal. Jesus lived to the fullest because he knew he would die, but he also lived to the fullest because he knew he would resurrect. One of the things that God is doing in these extraordinary times is using the fear of death to wake us up to what is truly life. I've heard it said that you learn a lot more at a funeral than you do at a party. So learn from this and let it clarify your life. The second thing going deep into your living hope will give you is greater comfort in trials. These trials hurt, but from the perspective of eternity, are they that big of a deal? I'm not saying that our trials aren't real. I'm not saying that they don't hurt badly now. But from the perspective of eternity, when all sad things come untrue, can you see that they are only light and momentary? One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from John Wesley. He talked about if you found out one day that you had this rich uncle that you never knew about. He, he passed away and he left you an immense inheritance. All you had to do was, was go to the bank. And so you're heading to the bank in your horse and buggy and one of the wheels falls off. Do you hop out of the buggy and start cursing and, and shaking your fist at the heavens and, and, and talking about your bad luck? No. If you're a half mile from the bank, you get out of the buggy and you skip all the way to the bank because you are so overjoyed at the inheritance that you have. John Wesley said that's what the believer's hope is like. It's that the misfortunes of the world seem to lose their sting because of this, um, this imperishable, unfading hope in the resurrection of Christ. I want to ask you today, do you have this living hope? If not, you can today. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today amazed that Jesus Christ is our living hope. In the gospel of Jesus, we have everything that we need for life. In the gospel, we have freedom from sin. We are freed from the power of sin. We're freed from the presence of sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. And God, we just want to say thank you. We stop to declare who you are. And thank you for what you've done. 
God, if there is anyone in this room today, if there's anybody listening to these words who doesn't have the living hope that's found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray today would be the day that they say, I need that living hope. I want that living hope. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I want to make him the Savior of my life. God, would you give anybody here who needs to make that great confession the courage to do that today, to come forward, to talk with one of us, to pray with one of us. God, if there's anybody here who who needs a dose of hope, I pray that they would find it in Jesus today. That's in his precious name we pray. Amen.